0: What's up? Welcome in to the latest episode of the Irish Huddle Podcast presented by Meetly, a fan engagement platform designed to provide fans the opportunity to actually meet their favorite athletes via FaceTime. We'll get to more on that later in the podcast. It's Monday, March 7th, 2022. I'm Patrick Engel. Joined, as always, by Tyler Horka. I think we'll get into spring next week, Ty, but NFL Combine just uh, happened this past weekend. I was down in Indy for part of it. I think it's worth kind of going over a few just kind of general reactions from this. I think the results were notable enough to at least discuss here before, of course, we get into our main uh, attraction of this episode, and that is former Notre Dame running back Reggie Brooks. But Ty, your reactions to the Combine, and why don't we just kind of go day by day here, starting with Jack Cohn and Kevin Austin, two guys who drew pretty positive reviews for what they did.
1: Yeah, it's crazy how much attention that 40-yard dash from Kevin Austin Jr. got, because what does it end up ranking? I know you did this story, Patrick, so you might know it off the top of your head, but I have it right here now. 14th out of 32 wide receivers, so that's pretty good, but in the moment that he ran it, I was like, man, that is a really good time for Kevin Austin. The fact that it's still only 14th among the wide receivers shows you how fast these guys have gotten at that position over the last decade or two, but... I mean, this isn't really something where Kevin Austin Jr. Jr. should be comparing himself to those other wideouts. He's probably taller than most of those other guys. Uh, I think he dropped a little bit of weight for this combine, but you know he's probably going to be playing at a, a heavier weight, too, so he's not supposed to be some 4-3 burner. The fact that he runs a four-four-three, I thought that was a really good time. And then going to Jack Cohn, I, we talked about it a week ago, right, that this was just going to be a showcase of his smarts, his intelligence. I think A lot of people are drawn to him just in the way that he acts. And it wasn't really going to be a lot of the things that he did in drills and in tests that were going to wow people just being there. And I think the quote, and you wrote about it, Patrick, where he said, I'm here to do everything. I'm going to do everything. I've got nothing to hide. That's Jack Cohn. We saw what he is out there at the combine. And that's who he can be for, you know, five, maybe even upward of 10 years as a a probably a backup quarterback in the NFL if he makes it that long. Yeah, with Cone, I
0: think it's just going to be demand over supply of QBs in the draft that gets him picked somewhere on that, that day three. And ultimately, it's, coaches want QBs who can run their run their offense, trust them to run their stuff, and pick it up quickly when you're looking for backups and, and looking for those day three draft picks that you think, all right, ideally, he's going to hang around here for a little bit as a backup. And I think Cone, even before then, before the combine fit into that pretty well. And I don't really think that anything he did here in Indy necessarily changed that. But Austin, I the the much bigger takeaway here is and, and I pulled some numbers on this after his 40s, is that there's seventy-three receivers who ran a four four five or better at the combine from twenty fifteen to twenty twenty. There was no combine last year, so I didn't go through all the pro days and include all that. And fifty seven of those guys were drafted. So that's 78%. So just on that alone, pretty pretty good chance. But of those 73 guys, there's 15 who also posted a vertical jump of at least 39 inches, which Austin did. And every single one of those 15 was drafted. And you actually have to go back to 2012, so a decade ago, the last time someone who ran a 4.45 or better and jumped 39 inches or better in the vertical wasn't drafted. So that alone, okay. That should get Austin the shot and I'm not sure that necessarily that was clear before that he was going to be drafted and I mean you didn't see him on a lot of like top 25 wide receivers lists or anything like that but I don't know that this necessarily moves him into day two pick category all of a sudden like I I think the combine for everything that it gets and the athletic skills that it can showcase like I, I just from the spectacle it's become is probably a little bit Gets conflated into how much it actually matters for draft stock, which isn't is not to say nothing does, but the other the rest of his career happened too, where you really didn't see anything from him for three years. You saw a good but still inconsistent at times twenty twenty one season. Uh, it doesn't change. I think he's still a developmental player, but I think it's pretty clear now that he was at least has an athletic skill set and a frame that an NFL team is going to want to try to develop and take the shot on there. So. Yeah, I I think
1: that sometime in day three, I think he
0: helped himself a lot there to to hear his name called.
1: Yeah, and we went into the combine saying who has the most to gain or lose. It was Kevin Austin Jr., probably the answer to both of those questions. And he gained a lot. I mean, like I said, Patrick, you wrote out some of these numbers. Fifth out of thirty-four wide receivers in the vertical jump, fifth out of thirty-four wide receivers. the broad jump second out of 13 in the 20 yard shuttle second out of 14 in the three yard or the the three cone drill and then we already laid out his 40 time as well so i think like you said patrick there was this thought that okay this guy is a supreme athlete but we only saw it for one year at notre dame we're gonna have to see it in indianapolis at the combine otherwise people might look at that one year at notre dame and say is that as good as it gets for Kevin Austin Jr.? No. Now they saw it, you know, amongst the best wide receivers in this draft class, and he was up there with, you know, toe to toe with with all of them and pretty much all of these metrics. So the this the trage- the trajectory that Kevin Austin Jr. can take from this is, yeah, I put down those numbers because that's who I am. That's the kind of athlete I am, and that's what I'll do on an NFL roster. So he did exactly what he had to do, and I was really impressed.
0: Yeah, on to Kyron Williams, who worked out the next day and in kind of a different tone surrounding him. The main takeaway from his workout, four sixty-five forty. that was last among running backs who ran. Uh, I don't think either of us watched Kyron nor really anyone else and thought, all right, this is going to be a clear sub 4-5 running back or that he's going to light up the, the combine or anything. But I, I think we we're both picturing probably a little faster than that. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure he's disappointed with it too. But I'm curious kind of, what what do you make of his 40 and, and kind of how it should affect the draft stock giving everything else that we know about him and that we think can translate for him?
1: Yeah, I think someone put it out on Twitter, and I'm sorry for not crediting this person because I've, I've seen so much Twitter stuff since then. I don't know who said it, but, you know, why are we running 40-yard dashes at the NFL Combine out of a traditional sprinter stance as if this is – track and field at the Olympics or something, right? That Kyron Williams isn't going to have his hand in the turf and have to get off the line in any situation in the NFL. He's going to be lined up next to or behind a quarterback, and we saw that for two years as a starter at Notre Dame, and he was really, really good and on some of those plays really, really fast. Uh, you mentioned last week's podcast, that 91-yard touchdown against North Carolina. He showed out of speed. You, you have to be fast to go 91 yards and score a touchdown. He had some good blocking help on that play, sure, but – there's proof in the pudding that, you know, Kyron Williams is fast. So definitely not the time that he wanted. I'm not trying to sugarcoat this or anything. Anytime 27 running backs are up at the NFL combine running a 40-yard dash and you're number 27, you don't really want to be in that position. But 4'6'5 isn't a terrible time, all things considered. So I think this goes back to what I was saying about the wide receivers. These athletes are really, really fast now. And if you don't put down a four or five or something in the four fours, especially as a running back, you're probably going to be behind a lot of people. And in this case, Kyron Williams was behind everybody. So, but if there's one thing I know about Kyron, Kyron Williams, he's still stewing over that. And uh, he's probably going to run a 40 up here in South Bend if he participates in the pro day. And he's going to want to try to run something around four five to prove to everyone that he is faster than four six five. So, I mean, long story short, that's not what he wanted to put down, but it is what he put down, and he's, you know, Kyron Williams is more than a four-six-five, and I think a lot of teams are going to realize that.
0: Yeah, I think there's an element of trust to tape to a degree w- with him that that was going to be a selling point with the receiving skills, the blocking, uh, the toughness, the, and the patience that you you see from him, and, and that doesn't go away or change with the forty. But nonetheless, I I would imagine this. This, has, this probably dings a little bit, right? Or at the very least, teams are really disappointed to see it. But to your point about why run the 40s from a sprinter stance for a running back, that's why I was curious to see the 10-yard split on the 40, which I don't think was ever made available. And none of the running backs ran the 20-yard shuttle and the 60-yard shuttle. And I would have been curious to see those two, just in the sense he, I, he definitely fits the more, like, quicker than fast kind of thing. And those drills, I think, would be do a better job of showcasing that quickness and in short area quickness that I think you you see on tape and that we saw him doing for, for two years here. And probably something that I, I would imagine he's going to try to do with the pro day. But yeah, overall, like he, I, I don't think he helped himself necessarily in, in the combine, but that's what the pro day is for. And that just takes on a little bit more meaning for him right now. But Kyle Hamilton, why don't, why don't we end there? Uh, the last guy to work out at the combine, Uh, I think the main thing that you see there is the 40, uh, four, five, nine. Uh, That was toward the bottom. Uh, I have to look at the exact number here exactly of uh, the number of safeties ran where that ranked, but it was, it was close to the bottom. I I think we all pictured he'd run faster than that. I would have guessed around 4.5, but we talked about the idea of trust the tape a little bit with, with Kyron Hamilton to me is the ultimate like trust the tape player. I mean, the range, and we were both there when we saw him come across the field for that interception against Florida State, the instincts, the size of the position, like, that doesn't go away. And that's the kind of thing that that made people say coming into this, rare breed, unicorn, whatever cliche you want to use. And I think it it sounds like the on-field portion of the combine where you can show off the fluidity, show off the coverage skills and and ability to put your foot in the ground and change direction that it all by all accounts went really well for him. So I don't think that 40 is really going to make much of a difference at all for him. Whereas for Williams, I, I can see how it might put a little alarm bell for teams right now.
1: Yeah. Kyron Williams, Kyle Hamilton, both sides of the ball, different sides of the ball, obviously are just football players at their respective positions. So he wanted to run a faster time just like Williams did for sure in the case of Hamilton. But like you said, there's just so many other things that people have seen for multiple years at Notre Dame. And I mean, he got injured, what, late October and it was still mid November. And there were outlets like pro football focus and all these others that were just like Kyle Hamilton, best safety in college football. Kyle Hamilton is the best safety in college football because of this and because of that. And, you there's numbers to prove it too. So he's more than a four, five, nine, just like Williams is more than a four, six, five. And um, I mean, just, just the size, looking at some of these size numbers, I, I think we forget that Kyle Hamilton is six, four. So obviously we, you know, he's not like a six, one safety that's supposed to be some burner type. And uh, look, Kyle Hamilton isn't going to pride himself on tracking down some of the faster receivers in the NFL uh, on the sidelines. He's going to, you know, pride himself on like you said covering a lot of ground and making plays on the football not necessarily making plays on players who already have the ball in their hands but he can do that too you know he's not the fastest guy out there but he can stop someone from getting to the goal line as well just because he's smart he's savvy he puts himself in the right position on the football field so uh, I don't think the 40-yard dash hurts him as much as it does Williams like you said but uh, all of these other things I mean second out of 17 safeties in the broad jump, third out of 15 in the vertical jump. He's an athlete, despite what his 40-yard dash might say. So Kyle Hamilton, an athlete and a football player, he's, he's going to be just fine when uh, draft time comes next month.
0: Yeah, for whatever reason, if he goes out of the top five or closer to like 8 to 12 or anything, I think it would have a lot more to do with positional value and teams' willingness to take a safety only at a certain point in the draft than it would anything he did in Indianapolis yesterday. And you mentioned those other times, like, or not times, but testing results from the broad jump and the vertical jump. Like, yeah, that's, that's a a showcase of the athleticism there too. And we talk about that interception against Florida state and as impressive as it was, and you don't want to say that he can't play center field or anything, but maybe that that got a little bit in people's mind of like, all right, this guy's Earl Thomas 2.0, where, he had range from anywhere and was you know, as good a free safety as there was for a while. I don't know if that was ever exactly what Hamilton was going to become because you see instincts against the run. You see him cover guys you know, one-on-one in the slot and be able to play in space closer to the line of scrimmage. I figured that's where you kind of want him in, like, the size. Uh, it's it's He's, uh, I'm pretty sure, a little bit bigger than Earl Thomas, where you want him closer to the line of scrimmage. And when we saw him blitz, he was effective there. So as a strong safety and i think that's much more what he profiles as and i think you still saw a lot that one what else he did besides the 40 and two just hashtag trust the tape that i that i don't think that projection for him has changed at all
1: yeah and one final note on him it was just good to see him out there like when i saw the video of him doing the vertical jump i was like that's the first time we've seen Kyle Hamilton doing something physically since he was being helped off the field at USC October 23rd. So uh, the 40 time wasn't as fast as maybe he or other people would have liked. But like I said, some of those other metrics were really impressive. And just the fact that he was out there and looks healthy and uh, looks like he's ready for the NFL draft was a good sign.
0: So we're going to get to Reggie Brooks here in just a second. But I figured we should touch on one little bit of news that popped up over the weekend, and that's Jarrett Patterson out for the spring and, and potentially for a lot of the summer uh, due to an uh, injury suffered, uh, lifting weights in winter workouts, expected back for the start of the season. But nonetheless, Notre Dame's most experienced offensive lineman, four years starting center, not going to be with the team in spring ball. Still, you I think you'd like to have him, as Harry Heastan goes, about shaping his offensive line in and, and a unit that returns a lot of experience but still is needing to take a couple steps, uh, isn't going to have its leader. So still a notable absence there. Uh, Your reaction initially to that injury news and kind of where Notre Dame goes uh, in the interim
1: here without him. Yeah, my first reaction was this is the second straight spring that he's going to be out of practices, right? So uh, he looked fine coming back from that last year. I think he's going to be fine coming back from it this year, but you would still like to have him on the field, especially considering, like you said, new offensive line coach, know the offensive coordinator is the same, but there's a new head coach. There's just a new feeling about Notre Dame football. So you'd kind of like to have him on the field considering this is uh, the first chance to kind of brand the new Notre Dame era under Marcus Freeman. But um, I don't know, do you, do you go back to Zeke Carell who kind of fell totally out of the rotation last year with uh, Andrew Christophe coming in and playing left guard and, uh, you know, the tackle situation is is solidified and I'm Can't wait to see those guys out there. But do you move a guard over to center? Do you move someone who wasn't in the picture at all at at the offensive line position over to center? I'm kind of curious to see what Notre Dame does. If it were me, I don't know if I want to put Zeke Carell there, if you still think he can be a guard for you at some point in the future. But if you and maybe if you don't think that he's going to play meaningful snaps at either guard position the rest of his career, he might be the perfect fill-in guy for spring practices and just say, hey, this is Jarrett Patterson's position as soon as he comes back, but we need someone to fill it in right now. And that's kind of what he did last year as well. But the intention was always there that he was going to be a starting guard. So the dynamic is a little bit different from when Patterson missed practices last spring as opposed to this spring. But you still need someone to fill in. And I don't really know if that's sophomore Pat Coogan, who was listed uh, as the backup for the Fiesta Bowl at center. I don't know if you throw a guy like that in there. But again, if this is as simple as, we don't have Jarrett Patterson and we need a guy to snap the ball during 15 spring practices, then maybe it's not as big of a deal as some people are making it out to be. And you just kind of throw uh, one of these other guys in there and and let them fill that gap for a month.
0: Right. It's not like they're trying to prep for Ohio state without Jarrett Patterson right now. Like that's, that's not a concern. And and if it is because his timeline is halted, well, they've got fall camp to figure that out. But I, I think, and I think it should be, Corral that gets the first look there, if for no other reason than he ended the season playing center. We saw him get in there briefly. I believe it was against Navy and maybe Georgia Tech, too, at the end of games, if I remember correctly. Uh, Actually, I know it was Georgia Tech, but beside the point, he got some reps there in garbage time late in the year. And I know we in discussing Patterson and who replaces him in the spring, that idea didn't necessarily excite some folks who commented on on our message board but to me like that's what spring practice is for like a guy who was a center exclusively a center in high school moved to guard because i thought he was one of the the best five and struggled and this is a time for figuring out okay is can you go back to center and, and or stay at center after kind of going back there second half of last year and look like the serviceable and above average player that he did when he filled in for Patterson in 2020, or is that, all right, he's still struggling with some of the stuff that popped up when he was a guard and they've got to figure out how to get him out of that. This is exactly what spring practice to me is for figuring out. And same with Pat Coogan, like a guy who's, this is his first spring. Uh, What kind of step is he going to be able to take to, or what, how does that shape some other offensive line decisions? And then just who else you might want to move there. I mean, Andrew Kristofic, you can imagine he stays at guard as a returning starter. And, or, you know, does he kick inside there if Josh Lug, who we expect to move inside to guard, uh, and him and, say, Rocco Spindler emerge? Like, I got a lot of things to sort out. But as far as figuring out what you have in a guy who you thought highly of and struggled, this is exactly the time to give him as much work as possible.
1: Yeah, and one last note on Patterson. Uh, I'm not really well-versed in pectoral injuries. I don't know the extent of his tear, so I don't know how long this is going to take. But these are reps that he's going to be missing with a guy like Tyler Buckner, who might not have taken a lot of reps with Jared Patterson. And I know he split some time uh, with the ones in practices just because with the the amount that Tyler Buckner played as a true freshman you've got to run him with the ones a little bit during practice but this would have been a full month of those guys working together kind of like Jack Cohn and Jared Patterson worked together last fall so you would really hope uh, if you're Notre Dame that Patterson is back on the field 100 percent for fall practices like I said I'm not sure how long this takes I I was reading some uh, different and don't believe everything you read on the internet but I was reading some different things and some people were like, oh, yeah, get out there in two months. And others were like, no, nah, you should probably wait six months if it's a full tear and you and you do the whole surgical procedure. So my lasting takeaway is it's going to be interesting to see when Jarrett Patterson comes back because he's going to need to get those reps with Tyler Buckner and Drew Pine for that matter. There's a new starting quarterback at Notre Dame, whether it's one of those two guys. So you'd like to like to have a little bit of a rapport with starting center. Oh,
0: absolutely. And if you're. Drafting things of what do you want Buckner to come away with this spring, that's probably not number one, but you'd certainly, it would have, it would have been nice, but yeah, you're just kind of hoping that there's enough time in fall camp for when he, when he gets back for whoever that is to develop enough of a rapport with him. But I think you guys have heard us uh, talk enough. Why don't we bring a third person in here uh, as our guest for this week? We'll welcome in former Notre Dame running back Reggie Brooks. We are joined by former Notre Dame all-time great running back Reggie Brooks. Reggie, appreciate you coming on with us today.
2: Well, thanks for having me, gentlemen. Uh, looking forward to chatting up with you guys. Uh, it's always good to talk to that next generation of uh, Notre Dame uh, fans, and you know Notre Dame. You know, well, I guess this would you guys be considered uh, media now. Uh, w- w- would love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, the whole the whole media process is a lot different than what it used to be.
0: Uh, no, no question. And speaking of a, a new media venture, you've, uh, are among the current and former Notre Dame players uh, involved with Meat uh launched by Notre Dame fan uh, Rob Connolly. Why don't you tell us how you got involved with that and how fans can uh, really what it is and, and how fans can kind of use it and, and take advantage of it?
2: You know, and it, it actually was a good fit for me because I actually, I'm used to engaging fans. It's, you know, when I was working at Notre Dame, um, I would, you know, run into people, you know, that were, because I was running around usually doing on game day, and you know you meet fans, and you know and it's always a joy to see people connecting with you know the 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 former players and the in the current guys and having that connection. When I was working there with the athletic department, league uh, was a great fit because it's it's an opportunity for fans to get to connect with their, you know, favorite Notre Dame players, but also kind of keep this, the, the new generation up on kind of the, you know, the history of Notre Dame and the success of the football program and to see some of the, the, the old guys that played at, you know, and played at a high level and just to engage the fandom because, you know, I've always felt Notre Dame fans were the greatest, you know, in the world. Um, because we are we are worldwide and, you know, it's a great opportunity to be able to do it virtually. And a lot of the kind of interest came out of it from the standpoint of, you know, we're going through a lot of the COVID stuff. You couldn't go to the games. And that was that was a shock to me. I, I remember the first time, you know, that was no fans allowed. I'm driving on the campus and there's no par- nobody's in the parking lots. And if you know anything about Notre Dame, the, the tailgates are epic <laughs> so to come there and not see fans in the in the stand are in the stands but not also on the parking lot it was like whoa this is very different and you know got connected with Rob and we were doing some virtual things with fans during the, the COVID time period um, and it was just just it was like wow this is actually pretty cool you know I, I was involved in uh, technology a little bit you know You know, I was a management information systems uh, major and it's like this is there's something to this. And so, you know, just the opportunity to connect, continue to connect with fans across the country. It allows you to, you know, to get to know me and uh, for me to get to know some of our fans that, uh, like I said, are the best in the country. First game of
0: it was the first game I was on the beat here and I pulled into the uh, the parking lot and like they were there's normally tailgates, but that was where they let everybody park. So it's, it's wild. We're like, all right, you can park here. And my spot was like, all right, I can take out a nine iron and and hit the, I think it's the Lou Holtz gate on the South side. It's (laughs) such an odd introduction to this like great spectacle that's known worldwide and certainly around any college football fan, but with meat lead, uh, how can fans download it? How can they uh, specifically try to uh, connect with you on there?
2: Um, I actually I I just I'm new to it. So I do know you can download it via uh the you know app app download and um I I'm, I'm gonna find my tag name. It's pretty simple because I I mean I know I'm in technology, but I'm not that good. So um I before the end of the show, I'll send you know put it in the chat and so you guys can see the my Username, I guess that would be. And you can just, you know, log on to Meetly and look me up and, you know, so, uh, pay a certain fee. And also, like I said, you, you can probably see my background. This is the Hostess Heroes uh, Foundation. It's a nonprofit that I profit that I work with now. And, you know, it it, it focuses on helping support a lot of the players. So, um, so a good portion of the proceeds will go to. Support the former players and you know guys that are struggling and having some difficulties, but also uh, it goes towards scholarship. And um, we do a lot in our community. You know, we have guys. You know, so Coach Holtz, for you the you, know, you guys know who Coach Holtz is, right? You're familiar with that old guy. Um, we we have a foundation that's focused on the guys that played for him, and you know, supporting the efforts and also supporting scholarships at Notre Dame, but also with um, young people around the country, mentorship, leadership. And we do a lot with the Bread of Life Food Drive to raise uh, money and food for local food banks within our communities.
1: I think that's one of the things that's so awesome about Notre Dame is once you become a part of it, it never leaves you. And then the opportunities are there to stick with it and, and keep showing what the Notre Dame brand can do for not just people who are a part of it, but you know, community outreach, those service things that you were talking about. And obviously I couldn't help but notice the Holtz, Holtz's Hero logo behind you. So I'm just curious how you got started in that and, and maybe what are some other things that you're currently doing uh, through the Notre Dame brand since you obviously graduated from there and have been kind of, you know, working the real world since uh, playing at Notre Dame?
2: Well, you know, and this is the thing that, you know, I, there's always stuck with me about Notre Dame is, my original visit to Notre Dame uh, when I was being recruited. So my brother was, you know, All-American before, you know, he was kind of the star running back before I even came to Notre Dame two years prior. But I remember, and he was my host uh, during my recruiting visit. Well, my brother really sucked as a host. He literally met me, you know, I saw him one time when I got there, and they get, I guess they get you get to host the players, you get a, a certain stipend. And I didn't see them the rest of my visit. And you know, so unlike most places, you have to go visit with the academic side of the house at Notre Dame, which I was not aware of. So I was used to just staying in the athletic area. And so I I was had a meeting with someone, and your host is supposed to get you to, to and from your meetings during that two-day period. So no brother, no direction. I'm on campus and, you know, I'd come to games before, but I only went to the game. So I'm trying to find a, and again, Notre Dame is not a big campus, but I'm trying to find an office, no freaking clue. And I'm out in this guy, uh, a groundskeeper, you know, a guy that's just just tending the grounds at the university and he goes out of his way to help me find my way to, you know, where I needed to be. And that always stuck with me. Someone that, you know, know, didn't really gain anything from helping me goes out of his way to help. And and I saw that continually throughout my visit. And then when I came to school here, there were a lot of people willing to help. And that's kind of a part of that. The nature of the Notre Dame family is supporting the community, supporting those around you. Um, and just doing what you can. And, you know, We, we you hear about the, the mantra of what would you fight for? And, you know, I, I always felt that it was important to give back um, because so many people gave to me, and it's always important to pay it forward.
0: Your brother, he kind of exposed, obviously, you to Notre Dame coming from Tulsa, but how did he kind of find it and, and really how both of you guys ended up at Notre Dame from Tulsa, which obviously not in region, not a place where you see them really recruit a ton now kind uh, of take us through that process of it that got uh, not one, but two first brothers to Notre Dame.
2: Well, because my brother was the number one uh, player in the state of Oklahoma. I mean, and, and this is back when, you know, Barry Switzer in Oklahoma, they just ruled Oklahoma and Texas, you know, Oklahoma state was pretty big. Um, and he was getting recruited across the country, UCLA, Miami, Michigan Penn state. I mean, get tons of, this is when you got tons of mail. And, you know, like my dad was a postman. And so he would bring back, bring home bags of mail of recruiting letters to my brother. And so, you know, I'm like, you know, two years younger. So I thought it was real cool to see these different schools, you know, recruiting. Him. And, you know, he would go through and, you know, tossing mail and, it was all, you know, trash and He was going to toss the Notre Dame letter. And my dad was like, hold on. You know, so my dad was uh, you know, he was from that. the The he he was he was born in 1925. So when Notre Dame was kind of having their heyday with the with the Leahy era, he would he remembered that, and he remembered Notre Dame just from the name and and it was because of that, and then also because of uh, Bill Warren and the Siegfried family. They were Notre Dame alum from our hometown we had no clue these people existed until they start, start recruiting my brother. And it was like, wow. And they were pretty, you know, notable people in, in Tulsa. Um, and, and again, it, great people. And they were like I said, just very, you know, just good people. And, you know, it, and that was the thing that really stuck out. But if not for my dad, my brother would have just discarded the Notre Dame and we would never been recruited. We'd have never seen it. Cause we didn't know where Notre Dame was. It was like, you know this far-off place. I mean, you know, we come on TV, but we always looked at Notre Dame as I didn't even know if it was in the country or not because you hear about the Notre Dame Cathedral, and I was like, oh, that's Notre Dame. So if not for my dad, we would not have the Brooks brothers would have never graced the 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 camp the beautiful campus of Notre Dame. I didn't know Notre Dame was that small though, and it was just you know because it just it just when you hear Notre Dame, it just seems so much bigger because it was had such a mystique around it. So you know just just that awareness and then just seeing how many, you know, prominent people that came from you know our hometown that were you know connected with Notre Dame. And I still have a relationship with Mr. W- uh, with Bill Warren to this day, you know and, and it's genuine. you know it's not about you know, he was successful. It was about, man, this guy's from my hometown. And, you know, when, you, when you're when Notre Dame, you're looked at differently. When you, you graduated from Notre Dame, and I remember this about playing in the NFL, and I hear from even the current guys, you're the Notre Dame guy. There's a different expectation of you because you graduated from Notre Dame, you played football at Notre Dame, you, you looked at differently, and there's a higher standard. And I, I welcome that. I mean, because, you know, we are Notre Dame.
0: <laughs> I imagine it was pretty rare for – the top player or top couple players in Oklahoma to get away from uh, Barry Switzer in in Oklahoma back in that time.
2: There was a book written. He, he has a book called bootlegger's boy, a bootlegger's kid that Barry, Barry wrote. And there was a chapter in there about my brother's recruitment and, and Bill Warren. And, you know, he was pissed. I mean, he literally, so uh, Barry went to my mom's job. I mean, they went to put out all the stops on my brother. And when she, basically he's like, what is it going to cost to get your son? That actually pissed her off. Cause it's like, you can't buy my child. So when he did that, I mean, there's no way my brother was going to OU and there was no way I was going either. Even if I wanted to, the <laughs> man would like, no. And 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 then Coach Hoach, he was like this they he came in the house and just wowed my parents. And and it's like you're talking about a consummate closer in from a recruiting standpoint. Vinny Serrata was a master setup guy. He was a recruiting coordinator for Notre Dame at the time. And but Lou, he 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 was a closer. I mean, they absolutely loved him. And what's so funny is. I would hear stories from other guys that, you know, like Jerome Bettis and Brian Young, Rick Meyer, all these other guys that, you know, played with similar stories about him, him coming in and basically recruiting your parents. And again, you know, back then, like I said, if you if you got the parents, and I think it's still the same today, the, the kid's going to do what they're told. <laughs> and, and pretty much my mom was like, you guys are going with this guy.
1: <laughs> well, you talk about Lou Holtz wowing you in a sense and it kind of brings me to bring up one of your touchdowns that really wowed everybody who's ever seen it and I know you've probably talked about it a thousand times but we'd be remiss not to ask about it and it's it's a little bit of an oxymoron to to ask you what you remember about the (laughs) unconscious (laughs) touchdown but you have to take our listeners through that play because I think that's one that sticks with them and it
2: sticks with anybody who's really a a fan of college football. What's well, so crazy is that I, I didn't remember the play. So, after after the game, you know, you have the, the press comes in, you, there's a post game press conference. I didn't remember the game. I mean, like, so I, I'm i like, I don't know what to tell you because I remember the game. So, until I watched it the next day when we had film, we watched film uh, on Sundays. And so it was like seeing it for the first time. And I was like, oh, wow, that was pretty good. You know, but I will say this, it is one of my least favorite plays because getting knocked out is not cool. I just, it's not a good thing. And, you know, back then you just got your bell rung. And I just remember uh, the trainer, Jim Russ, coming out there with smelling sauce. And I was like, Jim, why are you out here? We're in the middle of a game, man. What's going on? And lo and behold, I wind up going back in the game. You know, I may have missed a series but after the numbness wore off, <laughs> the left side of my body, hey, let's go. He's ready. <laughs> and and but after the game, I was just like clueless. I mean, and you know, it was it was a it was a, a option play, and you know, option to the right, and Rick, you know, pitched the ball, and I had a and it was um, gosh, and he he still gets pissy with me when he was coaching there. Um, oh, he coached at Notre Dame. He's a defensive coordinator under Charlie Weiss. Um Gosh, struggling with remember the guy's name. So uh, he was the defensive back, Corn Brown. So he was coming up, and you know, it, it did a spin move on him. You know, got hit another time, hand down the ground again. We used to practice that, and I actually could looked over to see the guy that was. The, the, uh, it was either the safety of corners coming and he drilled me right in the base of the base of the neck and the helmet. And if, if I were two yards back, that would have been a fumble <laughs> and coach hosts would have had my ass. So that's the one, I mean, that was the only thing I was really concerned about is like, did I hold on to the ball? Because I don't care if you're knocked out or not coach Holtz turnovers were unacceptable for any reason. So if I had to fumbled that ball, it, could have, it came within a couple of yards of being the worst play uh, of my career, and it wound up being a great play because I was two yards closer to the end zone.
1: Yeah, absolutely a great play, and every time I watch it, I'm just like, how did he hold on to that ball and cross the goal line? But you mentioned that's not your favorite play of your career. If you had to pick one, if, if there's a play that you go back to in a Notre Dame uniform and you're like, yep, that's the one, who was it against? What was that play?
2: You have to say USC. You know, again, that is you know, I don't like Michigan, don't like Michigan State, but USC, and I like the guys. Don't get me wrong. You know, uh, uh, Willie McGinnis, great guy, great guy. I consider him a friend, but he played he played for that team out west, in that ugly those ugly colors. But that's a whole nother story, and. He had the game of my life that game. I mean, it was like, it was I had like three touchdowns. So it wasn't so much a play as it was a game. And, you know, and you, you talk about being in the zone and I was sick that game too. So that was like, I was throwing up at halftime, you know, didn't, almost didn't make it. I didn't compete. I didn't participate in pregame at all. And I don't know what came over. was like you know, Coach Coach Holtz asked me in pregame, "Was I going to be able to go?" And I was like, "There's no way in hell anyone's going to stop me from playing in this game because this is my senior year. We're playing SC in the Coliseum. Oh yeah, I'm playing. I don't care if you have to drag me out there and just prop me up. I'm playing in this game and wind up having best game of my career. Um, and against a really strong you know USC defense and like I said, mentioned Willie McGinnis. He he was he was on that team. And I mean, had two long runs and then uh, a a shorter run, a shorter run for me at the time was 20 yards because for coach host was not, I mean, I was not in the goal line package. That was not. So if I didn't score outside of 20 yard, the 20 yard line, I wouldn't go score. (laughs) I think I had one touchdown that was, would be considered a red zone (laughs) touchdown uh, back then. That, that was your version of, uh, the, of the flu game, <laughs> it sounds like. Right. And we actually, it was a couple of guys that got sick. Uh, our kicker, Craig Hendrick, who was, played, what, 15, 16 years in the league. He was a kicker, punter. And people don't know about this, but Craig Hendrick was a freaking athlete. So when we were coming in freshman year, freshman came in, uh, uh, you know, about a week before the upperclassmen. And you had to work offense and defense. And, and Craig was the kicker, but he worked as a safety and on on, on defense. And dude, this this is, again, I, I I rib on kickers a lot, but Craig Hench would smack you in the mouth. I remember coach stopped him from running down on kickoffs just so he wouldn't get hurt because he would go down there and make the tackle. And it's not like you when you see kickers just kind of jump in the way. No. Craig Hutch would literally try to lay you out. And I've seen him on in games, you know, he'll kick the ball and then run down there and make the play. And it's like, "Oh wow." I mean, but we started in practice and I mean, just very very unkicker like. <laughs> and I mean, and he was one of the toughest guys that, you know, we saw but coach literally had to say, "You are not allowed to run down on kicks." And he was pissed cuz he loved that. He loved going down there and, and I mean, we, our practices and our game, we played physically. You know, you may have, you know, I won, I lost a total of eight games in my four years there, but never did anyone out physical us. We were always the most physical team in every game.
1: Oh, I don't want to say that's a, a lost art because the game has changed. And, and with a good reason, like you said, nobody needs to be getting knocked out or you don't need bumps and bruises in practice or anything, but that's definitely interesting to hear what it was like back then, especially from a kicker standpoint, because, like I said, you just don't see that today, but that, that must have been fun, and I'm sure those are memories that stick with you too.
2: Oh, yeah, without a doubt, and just, you know, and that's one of the great things about the Hoaches Heroes organization, you know, because a lot of people, you know, you get together and you gather and, you know, this is not – we don't just hang out. This is not just hang out. We're, it's, there's a purpose and you know I you know it's, you know some of the stuff that you know our guys are doing and doing a great job and doing some really good things it's it's about giving back to the community and serving those uh those that are less fortunate because a lot of our guys came from you know tough areas of, of the country um but we all came together for a greater purpose than ourselves and it just resonated that you have, you know, guys that you're still connected with some, you know, 30 years later and you have this connection that go, runs deeper than just playing a game. You know, we, we you know, when we, our mantra is love, trust, love and commitment. And, you know, when Coach Host always talked to us about, can I trust you? Are you committed to excellence and do you care about me? And you ask that of yourself. And you asked that of those around. You said, do you care about the people that you play with? Can you trust the guys? But can you be trusted to do the right thing? And will you do what's right and do the best you can every time? And that's why I said he was always looking for that perfect practice. And in that, there was a, um, a strength and a bond that resonated with us years later that, you know, if if we have someone that's one of our guys that's in trouble, we're there. And it's not just, you know, you know, very, it's not superficial. I mean, guys genuinely care for one another. And it's, you know, it's funny how, you know, you go back and think back on, you know, life and, you know, those opportunities. And a lot of it for us centered around our experiences at Notre Dame and the importance of giving of yourself and giving to others and it's important that, you know, family is a part of that. We talk about the Notre Dame family and, and it starts with your own, own family and, and it extends from there.
0: So speaking of one of your old teammates and someone who uh, may be family to you, Jerome Bettis, back in school, finishing his degree. Have you gotten to talk to him about what that's been like? And, and it seems like he's really enjoyed it from we saw him talk to the team. Uh, we saw him run in the student section of one of the basketball games. Uh, have you gotten a chance to really kind of talk to him about that part of it and going back and, I guess, finishing what he started?
2: Yeah, I mean, because I, I did same. I, I I left and had a semester to go and I came back in ninety nine to finish and I know how scary it is. You know, and that was one of the things, that, you know, and he came back because, you know, for his mom, he made a commitment to his mom. And that's something Coach Holtz made a commitment to our parents and, you know, he sat there in our parents' home and said, Hey, you know, your, your son is going to get that degree." That was what he talked about in terms of the recruiting process. And, you know, know, Jerome's mom, you know, went through a battle with uh, breast cancer and she's a breast cancer survivor, but I always remember our parents being, you know, you know, in the same section. And to see him go back and, and honor that commitment that he made to his mother, you know, that's, that's that commitment that we talk about—that trust, love, and commitment. And you know, Jerome has always been someone near and dear to my heart because of you know just in our similar upbringings, we're different parts of the country, but one of the most affable people you'll ever 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 meet. I mean, I've all—I mean, this guy always has a smile on his face. And, and a love for people. And, you know, he's doing great things with the Bus Stops, Foundation, Bus, Bus Stops Here Foundation. And, you know, we work to support that. And that's part of what Hoax's Heroes is support the work that our guys are doing. You know, we have several guys that have foundations that are doing, you know, great work in the different communities. And we're there to support them, you know, both financially, but also physically, to be there in those situations to say, hey, JB, what do you need? And, you know, cause he does it, does it for others. And, you know, just seeing how he's grown and then sending back because you guys got understanding, this is probably more terrifying for him than me because I was at least somewhat in the realm of the people I was going to school with. It was six years later versus, you know, you know, he's 50 now, but the thing about it is, like I said, I knew he was going to be successful when he came back just because of, you know, the type of person that he is and the, the commitment. And to to do that, and I got to, you know, just hats off to him because that's that's not easy. You know, and, you know, and you talk about different people and people see him, you know, the Hall of Famer, All-American, this and that. But he's the dad. He's a husband, you know and having a family and have to be away from your family to make that sacrifice. You know, and that's the other thing about Hochi's heroes is hey, like, you know, our members, we understand the importance of sacrifice and, you know, your family, you're making a sacrifice. He's making a sacrifice coming back, but it's also setting uh, a precedence for his children to say, Hey, this is important. You know, this is years later, but this, you know, cause he doesn't need to have a degree. I mean, he's, been a, he's a successful businessman successful individual but it's about commitment follow through and he is he epitomizes that of someone that you know hey i made this commitment and i'm going to honor it years later you know he could have just said ah eh, i don't have time but he made the time and i i i i, I commend him just because of that and not because he's Oh, the bus and this, no, that, that was, that was tough, you know, cause he's a family man that has to take away from his family, but they understand, you know, and it's, and it's also important to have that support of your family to be able to do that. Cause I know my wife did that for me and, and Jerome's wife, Chamika, is doing that for him and his kids. And it means a lot because you need that support. That's what Notre Dame football is. It's a, it's a support for one another and not just, for when you played there, the guys that you played with, but years later and him going back, talking to the team, he means that because they're a part of our family just because they're part of the Notre Dame football community.
1: Well, speaking of a Notre Dame man who always seems to have a smile on his face and is a father, is a husband himself, Marcus Freeman, the new head coach. I'm curious if you've had a chance to meet him and if you ha- even if you haven't, what are your impressions of him, and how do you think he'll fare as a Notre Dame head coach? It Seems like he's got all the optimism and
2: support in the world behind him. He does, and I just I'll say this, and you know this is the my best compliment to him is that he's been so gracious in reaching out to the former players, and it's almost scary that he's willing to do that for us because that hasn't always been the case. So his ability, he actually went and had lunch with Coach Holtz or dinner with Coach Holtz. He flew to Coach Holtz. You know, that deference and that honor he gave one of the Notre Dame greats, and he's always been receptive. So, again, I hope that things work out on the field, but when it's all said and done, he's going to succeed because of who he is and the type of person that he is, and he's going to have the support of all the, the, us old heads and the guys and how the, the current team reacted to him. You can't fake that. You cannot fake that.
0: Well, Reggie, we appreciate you joining us today. And, and before we let you go, I want to give you a chance to uh, plug your, the, the book that you've written that came out. Uh, I believe it was uh, summer of 2021. Is that right? Uh, you can kind of take us uh, what you wanted to do with that and, and where fans can can find it.
2: Um, It's in your bookstore. You can go out to Amazon.com. Um, and, and downloaded or our, our, our buy via Amazon. I think everything is on Amazon. <laughs> but the, the book was not something I was thinking about until, again, COVID kind of presented the opportunity. And I had the honor of working with one of the great um, Notre Dame men, uh, John Heisler, on the book. And it, it was a compilation of different my experiences at Notre Dame as a former athlete, but also as an alum. And as as an employee, and ju- just those three different perspectives of what Notre Dame is, what Notre Dame football is about, and having the opportunity to relive some great stories and great opportunities, it's a fun read. Um, you get I get talk about different guys you know that I've in, encountered over the years. You know Rocky Blyer, you know Joe Theismann, Montana, and it, it it it's not a book about football. It's a book about people that played football at Notre Dame and some of the current guys, some of the recent guys, and just the ability to overcome. And again, Notre Dame is not an easy place to matriculate through, but it it really speaks to the, to the, you know, the essence of the of the program and the people, because there's a commonality there of compassion, care, you know, and you think, you don't think about those things when you think football. But the story of, you know, just being there for one another, being that support system. And I remember when I was at Washington in the NFL, you know, Joe Theismann came to visit and, you know, make a point of, you know, know, uh, introducing himself to myself and Tom Carter, you know, as a legend uh, from Washington. And, you know, he said, hey, this is your Notre Dame guy. And, you know, Rocky Blyer, you know, Joe Montana. Um, you know, like these all, you know, Ross Browners, these guys that are, you know, legends always afforded themselves to the guys that and, and, and I said, Hey, we have to do that for this next generation is to be there. And part of the book is an homage to just that, the legacy of, of Notre Dame football.
0: And that's if these balls can talk stories from the Notre Dame fighting Irish sideline locker room and press box. That's Reggie's book. Well, Reggie, thanks again for joining us and for sharing all these stories and all your uh, your, your wisdom here about uh, all things Notre Dame.
2: I'll see you guys uh, back on campus. Like I said, we have our uh, uh, Holtz's Heroes reunion every year. The second home game is going to be the Cal game, uh, September 15th and 16th. So we'll have a host of uh, guys from the Holtz era back, and hopefully we'll have Coach back again. But you know, hopefully I'll see you around campus. And what's the cool thing now, I actually get to tailgate finally. I, I, I never got to tailgate before. So I was either playing or working. Now I actually get to enjoy that. It was it – last year was pretty fun. I was like, hey, no no one told me about this. I, I, I've been – they've been holding out on me all these years. The, the, the best-kept secret that was right in front of you the, the whole time.
0: That's <laughs> exactly. Great you got to experience it. And Reggie, thanks once again. Thank you. Notre Dame fans, you can support Reggie Brooks and book him on the Meet Leap app. And when you book Reggie, you will get the opportunity to have a one-on-one FaceTime where you can ask him about the unconscious touchdown, playing for Notre Dame, or even the upcoming 22 season, whatever you please. A portion of every call will benefit a charity of Brooks's choosing, which, as he mentioned, holds his heroes. Uh, having some of those proceeds go to that. Search for Meetly in the iOS store or go to M-E-E-T-L-E-T-E dot com. And Meetly is a fan engagement program designed to provide fans the opportunity to actually meet via FaceTime their favorite athletes. Every at lasts four to five minutes. You can ask questions, share specific memories, and get to know your favorite athletes through there. And once again, every call helps a charity of the Athlete's Choice. That's MeatLeet M-E-E-T-L-E-T-E dot com.
2: What's up, Notre Dame fans? It's Reggie Brooks. I'm here to tell you I'm meeting my biggest fans on MeatLead. Let's talk Notre Dame football past and present. A portion of the proceeds will go to the Holtz's Heroes Foundation, and one lucky winner will win two tickets to the BYU-Notre Dame game in Las Vegas. So download MeatLead onto your iPhones and meet me at MeatLead.
0: Well, we really appreciate Reggie coming on and telling some great stories with us. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Irish Huddle. We'll be back next week. Big spring practice preview breakdown, that spring practice for Notre Dame starting up on March 17th. We will talk to you a few days before then and have another guest on who you're going to recognize next week. Until then, take care. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently